Lord God, it is a good thing to come before you in prayer. You are the creator of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing God. And you are available to us to pour our soul and our hearts out to you. We praise you, Lord, that you are the model of what service looks like. For in humility you sent your son to take on human flesh and to be born as a baby. And he took sin on himself so that we might be saved. So while you selflessly sacrificed yourself for us, we confess, Lord, that we do not naturally serve others. No, the the direction of our hearts, the, the natural bent of our lives is focused away from you and is focused on serving ourselves. God, give us hearts to see others in need, to see and to serve others who are not like us. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have failed to serve those who are among us. Forgive us, Lord, as we failed to serve strangers. We look for comfort and ease in our relationships, Lord. We look for others to serve us instead of us serving them. And Lord, it is uh, that we, we repent of that, Lord, and we confess that to you. Lord, give us new hearts that long to sacrificially give of our time, our skills, and our money to serve others around us. Thank you, Father God, that you have not called us this morning to serve alone in this world. But Lord, we serve alongside other local churches. This morning, we thank you specifically for the branch in Corvallis and for Pastor Doug Payne. Lord, we thank you for his faithful ministry there in that church, and we pray that you would equip him and that church to continue in faithfulness. And as students begin to return to Corvallis for fall semester, we pray that you would use the branch to influence many in the knowledge and the fear of you. Uh, Lord, we're also very grateful, as we just saw, uh, for the work that you're doing in Burkina Faso. Lord, we thank you for the, the training that is taking place there, Lord, uh, in this school for pastors. And we pray that, that they would be blessed and given longevity. Lord, may their ministry continue and persevere in trying days. And may your word go out and may people come to know you. And Lord, we just pray that the church would be built there in a way that not even the gates of hell would prevail against it. We pray also this morning, Lord, for ourselves. We are grateful, Lord, for the the Robison family. We thank you for the addition of Holly Ray. Lord, you are grateful in giving life, or we are grateful, Lord, that you have given life and added to that family. Lord, may they raise Holly in the fear and admonition of you, and may we as a church come alongside them in that. Lord, give Tyler and Sarah rest in the coming weeks and days, and may their lives be filled with the knowledge of your goodness. And as we come to your word this morning, we pray that it would warm our hearts, Lord. May it produce fruit that would uh, continue, Lord, into the future in our lives. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. <clears throat> We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, if you want to open there, get prepared. When I was playing basketball as a young man, uh, my father impressed upon me the need to find other players to look to, to emulate. He would point them out whenever we were watching games. He would uh, buy me uh, gifts. He and my mom would buy me gifts of VHS tapes. Any of you remember any of those things back in the old days? VHS tapes that had old game footage. I would spend hours watching players like Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Dr. J, Wilt Chamberlain. And then I'd go down to the local park or out in my driveway and do my best to recreate each amazing play, trying to emulate every action that they did. I wanted to follow in the example of these model basketball players. Now, in athletics, the choice of who to select as a model or example is pretty easy. You just look for the person who's the best at the game, who puts up the biggest numbers, then you watch them and emulate them. Unfortunately, I think a similar strategy has crept into the church of looking for who to emulate. Especially since the middle of the last century, Christians have flocked to emulate the biggest names with the biggest churches, with the most book deals, with the highest rated podcasts. And in this consumeristic Christian subculture, we will look to anyone to be a spiritual leader simply because they are successful in a worldly sense and maybe claim the name of Christ with their words, even if their life shows something different. 
This phenomenon seems even more prevalent in the last 70 years, but the reality is, is there's nothing new under the sun, amen? Many of Paul's letters, for example, such as 1 Timothy, were written out of a context of a congregation which he planted, being led astray by leaders that, according to Paul, they should have never been following in the first place. And we might, might pause and ask, why do we do this so easily as followers? Well, it's because our purpose on this planet is to follow, to worship, and to serve. That's the purpose for which we were created. But at the heart of our original sin and pervasive depravity, we often seek someone to lead us using a filter not of godly wisdom, but of worldly popularity, which is really just foolishness. That is why people such as movie stars or athletes or politicians are looked to as spiritual leaders regardless of what their life looks like because they post hashtag something Christian on their Instagram account. In Paul's case, he even wrote to those he was discipling not to follow those who might pay lip service to the same doctrine and gospel, but showed contrary fruit in their life. So the one whom we now revere as the great apostle to the Gentiles, St. Paul, was often minimized by the very people he had served and loved because of so-called, quote-unquote, super-apostles, that's what Paul calls them, that were coming into the fold and misleading the people, but doing so with more charisma and worldly leadership capability than Paul. And this was the background of the letter to 1 Timothy as well, where we find ourselves in chapter 3. Men who, by their actions, displayed unwillingness to unite in the gospel and unwillingness to submit to Scripture, they were drawing people away, other members of the church of Ephesus, into disunity and division and errant doctrine. And the church was in chaos because of it, because it's a good metaphor, right? We are sheep, are we not? And I include myself in that. We don't look to see what's spooking the other sheep. We don't look and see with our critical thinking to see if it's actually a threat. We just follow the other sheep that gets spooked, and we run too, right? That's kind of how we work. And so to get back to the good order of things, Paul is writing this letter to his apostolic delegate, Timothy, who's been sent to bring the church back into order. Remember that 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, in the center of the book, before we get to our main text, it says this, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. As we have seen, Paul started at this cosmic level back in chapter 2 of order and brought it down into the local church, establishing the point of where responsibility and authority lie. And in so doing, Paul is trying to tell the church what the good order should be like, how the household of faith should function. And Paul also was paving the way to give the church the tools to what to look for in who you should follow. And isn't it interesting that as we learned last week, Paul spends no time on the charisma or charms that might endear the world to a leader. He doesn't even prioritize the signs of successful work of the leaders in the church. He instead begins with qualities that display good, godly character. The word character comes from a Greek word that means the mark left from a stamping tool. It is a defining mark. And specifically, these marks that Paul lists show marks that point to the one who has stamped his character upon them, Jesus Christ himself. They are the marks to the flock of a mature Christianity where there's a state of faithfulness and humility, of self-control, dependence upon the Holy Spirit, adherence to the solid doctrine of the faith, a willingness to repent when in error. These things are all present. And so last week, Ryan unpacked the text on overseers. So if you haven't listened to that, you can go back and listen to it. These overseers were also known as pastor elders in the church. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the second defined office and see the qualifications of model servants in the local church. Paul speaks of them as deacons, and we'll talk about why I said model servants here. And so this is the qualifications of model servants in the local church. That's what I've entitled the sermon today. So let's begin by reading our text in 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 8, and see this second defined office after overseers or pastor elders. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we have outlined here before us the first thing, is the qualifications of the model servants in the local church. And we see this in verses 8 through 12. It's very straightforward. The qualifications of the model servants in the local church. It's so plain, plain as day, that Paul writes this. And interestingly enough, if you look at church history and even the state of the current church, across the pale of orthodoxy in Catholicism and Protestantism, uh, we get this one wrong all the time. And it's so sad because he has given it to us so clearly. Now, you might be wondering, why does this point up on the screen say model servants and not deacons? He's obviously talking about deacons, but let me explain for a moment. The definition of this job is in the name itself. We don't need a definition of what they're to do. It's in the name itself. You see, we know that overseer is a position of oversight and headship within the church, partially because of the name. But the word deacon is even more self-explanatory. You see, the Greek word in the original manuscripts and language from which we get deacon is diakonos. Diakonos. This is what it looks like in the Greek. You don't have to write it down. Uh, In Greek, what that word means is servant. So it could basically say in literal translation in verse 8, servants likewise. Servants likewise. It's related to both the verb, uh, diakonein, to serve, and the noun, diakonia, service. It's to serve. But the structure and grammar are emphasizing that while this word could be applied to anyone who serves well within the local church, there is an established office in church leadership structure of deacon. And the extra-biblical and historical evidence that this role existed and this office was important and set apart from the earliest days of the church is very strong. So Paul, just as he did with elders, is likewise pointing to certain persons within the church to emulate what I'm here calling, quote, model servants within the church. In other words, they are just like everyone else in the church, or at least like everyone else should be, servants of Christ and his people. But they also hold a special designation, as if to say, look at me for an example of what serving in this local church looks like, and then emulate me as I emulate Christ. In other words, you are to look at them to see Christ, the service of Christ. And again, he does not point primarily to their work, but he points to their character. So let's break these down one by one and take a look at them. First, it says that deacons are to be dignified. And notice the word likewise. Deacons likewise must be dignified. This is purposefully pointing back to the section on overseers, on pastors, elders, and saying that there is a similarity. This is interesting because across the church, deacon is used in varying capacities. Sometimes they are board members, sometimes ushers, and unfortunately, in some churches with similar ecclesiology as ours, the diaconate is seen as kind of JV elders. It's the step you have to go through in order to get to being an elder. But that's completely wrong. What we'll see is that many of the same qualifications exist for deacons as with elders because they, like overseers, are to be mature believers who are acting in a separate role to lead the church in love and service. Same quality of character but separate roles. Now, for more on this idea of complementary roles, go back two weeks ago and listen online to our study on the end of chapter two in God's good order of complementary roles with equal value. Overseers and deacons are complementary roles with equal value. But let's get back to the qualities here. Dignified means to be worthy of respect and honor. In other words, to be someone to whom a more novice, or newbie, if you will, disciple, can look to as a model. As with the above reproach phrase with overseers, this idea of dignified can be applied to all of the rest of the qualities as a header. And they are worthy of being emulated, this deacon is, because uh, they have what we will now see is at least three areas of self-control. 
First, to be self-controlled means that they are not driven by their appetites or emotions, but they're able to bring these under control. Mature Christians still have the same drives and appetites and emotions as the novice believer. It's just that they have worked day after day, moment by moment, to not give way. Instead, they bring them into obedient submission to what God has declared as good and true. Not that they have arrived in this, because if that were the case, none of us in leadership would be in leadership. Amen? Not that they've arrived, but that their progress is evident. You see, the Lord... For those of you who are newer to the faith, the Lord wants forward progress. It doesn't matter if that forward progress is in miles. It might be for some of you, and praise God for that. But for some of you, you might be in a season of life where you are eking out in millimeters of forward progress, but the Lord is still pleased with you because it's forward progress. We won't arrive until glory, amen? And so we move forward in progress. Now notice this side comment, just as an example of this idea, just a little bit further in the letter, uh, Paul says this to Timothy. He tells Timothy to practice all these things that he's talked about by, by chapter 4, verse 15. He says, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. You see, Timothy even, the apostolic delegate, the lead pastor, if you will, of, of Ephesus, he even wasn't perfect, and Paul knew this. But he said, just make sure there's forward progress. Noticeable progress demonstrates growing maturity. And so let's look at the three areas of self-control that Paul talks about. First, to be self-controlled in words. The phrase here is, quote, not double-tongued. This means that they're not manipulative or duplicitous in their speech, where they talk to somebody uh, in front of them as if they're their best friend and then immediately goes behind them uh, and tears them down through gossip or slander. They're not gossips. They're not slanderers. And this is regardless of who they're talking to. They speak the truth. What they say to one person is what they will say to another. And their desire is that their words are true. Secondly, to be self-controlled in fleshly appetites, to be temperate. The example used here is not addicted to much wine. They are not to be overcome by addictions. Please note that here and in the section on overseers, this is not painting wine or alcohol to be evil innately, but rather speaks to the person's ability to either master it in obedience to Christ or, unfortunately, be mastered by it. And so there needs to be self-control in words and self-control in fleshly appetites or temperance. Third, to be self-controlled in stewardship, in other words, generosity in their finances. They will not try to manipulate in order to satisfy their greed for dishonest gain. And the fruit of words and actions, submission of fleshly appetites and stewardship of finances, this is the fruit that is to be seen in the life of those that are to be looked to as model servants in the church, deacons in the church. Now, isn't it interesting, friends, that pastors and church leaders who fall often fall to these same three areas, regular and consistent speech that does not glorify God, failings to substances and sexual immorality, and embezzlement or financial management. God kind of knew what he was talking about, didn't he? He said, don't look to people who don't have the character but may have the charisma. Look to people who have the character. Next, Not only was there to be self-control, but the deacon needs to, quote, hold the deep truths of the faith firmly and hold them in, quote, good conscience. And this means that there is an understanding of the depths of Christian wisdom and scriptural truth into which they are grounded. A deacon isn't just the guy who's handy or who seems like he's the jack of all trades that can get stuff done around the church, the glorified janitor, if you will. The deacon is one who is to have a firm handle on the word of God. They are to be able to speak truth and to Uh, condemn heresy and to uphold people in the word of God. They are to have the truth and wisdom in complete submission and obedience, which is where the good conscience that they're operating from comes from. In other words, the Bible is their source of truth, and they strive to walk in obedience to the faith. Again, not having arrived, but striving for that. Now, interestingly enough, this phrase, good conscience, is used four times throughout this short letter. I'll let you go do the study on your own there. But what it means is that there is constant striving for obedience, okay? There's a constant desire to operate in this good conscience. So in two cases, it's talked about from a positive perspective, but in two cases, it's used from a negative perspective as contrast. 
of those in the church that are bad leaders that have seared their own conscience answer to no one in order to continue in disobedience. These contrasts and this idea of good conscience are used to point out the difference between the false leaders from whom you should run very fast and the true leaders in God's church that you should embrace and emulate. Third, not only in self-control and holding the faith in good conscience, but also these deacons should be, quote, tested and found blameless. Now, this is similar to the phrase above reproach in the qualifications of an overseer. And we have to be careful with this word blameless because we all know that there is only one who is blameless. And who's that? Jesus. And so there, there obviously isn't a perfection looked for here. But what this means is this means that within this individual, there is an innate patience during the process of sanctification, a trust in God's providence and the leadership of the church and a humility to be raised up to a position of example or responsibility in God's timing, not in their own. And this does not mean tested to look for perfection, but examined. Examined. Again, to a high bar of faithfulness, selflessness, innate obedience, and quick repentance. Ryan talked about this last week, and I'll just add a little bit more to it. This idea of being examined, is this only for deacons and elders? No, this is for anyone who wants to be a mature Christian. Friends, to be a mature Christian, you should desire to be examined to see if your words and actions match up to Scripture. Why? Because our entire goal as Christians is to be witnesses that show Christ to the world. And if we're not doing that, we should have a greater desire to be humbled so that we can repent more so than to not be embarrassed or to be ashamed. We should all desire to be examined. This is not just for deacons and elders, but they are to be models in this. We should be a church full of brothers and sisters who are constantly asking for input from those closest to them. How am I doing? What can I grow in? Where can I show Christ more? How can I love you better? That should be the culture of this church from the ground up. Well, fourth, we run into an interesting turn here. Notice that the next section seems to be talking about the wives of the deacons. But this is where we run into some trouble, and this is one of the few places that I get frustrated with the ESV translation of the Bible. And you might even be wondering, if you come here, uh, if you're a member here, wait, we have female deacons. Uh, is, is, where's that fit in here? This is where I want to take a little bit of time just for a second and pause in our train of thought and talk about right here in verse 11 where it says, their wives. Okay, This throws us for a bit of a loop because the Greek manuscript, uh, in the Greek, the word for wives and women is the same in the Greek. Okay, Here's what the word looks like in Greek, uh, gunekas. It comes from the, the root uh, gune, uh, which can mean either women or wives. Okay, And so it took context around it uh, to be able to tell you which it was using. And since there is no direct object, there is no... Uh, there, or there, and there is no the in the, the original Greek, uh, it could be translated likewise women, okay? Now, this is why if you have a, a New American Standard Bible, an NASB, it looks like this in verse 11. Women must be likewise, or must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things, the NASB is a more literal translating Bible than even the ESV. Now, there is much loving and respectful debate in this topic, and I think that if you are a person who lands in a rigid complementarian position where only men can be deacons and elders, uh, I can understand. Uh, that is there in the Bible. That possibility is there in the Bible. But here at Mission, we have what is referred to as a soft complementarian view, a soft complementarian view where we believe in male-only eldership because there is no such section in verses 1 through 7, but we do have both male and female deacons because we believe it to be biblical. So let me take this moment to quickly explain why that is, because this is important for you to feel at home in this church. First, if it is indeed talking about the need for faithful and mature wives for the deacons, it is quite odd that Paul would omit the same qualification for the elders since they carry just as much, elders' wives, they carry just as much, if not more of a burden, than the wives of the male deacons. 
So it's odd that there is no statement of that for the elders. Second, there is evidence of female deacons in male-only, elder-led churches as early as the first century. So they would have male-only eldership, but male and female deacons. Romans 16.1, for example, speaks of a woman named Phoebe who was a deacon in the Roman church. Extra-biblical sources are also quoted as speaking of female deacons as early as 115 A.D., Third, notice the repetition of wording that's describing the qualifications of these women that is almost repeating what has already been said about the male deacons, dignified, not slanderers, which is similar to double-tongued, sober-minded, which is similar to self-control over fleshly appetites, and faithful in all things, which means dependable, trustworthy, and faithful in relationships. Fourth, this all fits so well under the earlier discussion from a few weeks ago of the good order of God. Even though this is considered a role of leadership, remember that God is not against female leaders. God has given responsibility to male leaders, but he's not against female leaders. So in the home, you can only have a male leader of the household. In the church, you can only have male elders. Now, again, the innate nature of deacons is to be helpers or assistants to the overseers, just as a wife is equal in value and worth to her husband, but separate in complementary role of helper to the man to fulfill his responsibility given by God to manage the home or the church. Similarly, deacons are equal in value and worth in the local church to the elders, but separate in complementary role of helper to fulfill the elders' responsibility. What a beautiful thing it is that God would appoint men and women in this role of deacons so that people, men and women in the church, have models to look to in their own gender to see what healthy service looks like. Now, one of the opposing opinions against what I have just said, and that supports the idea that verse 11 is speaking to male deacons' wives and not female deacons, is that the very next verse gives a fifth qualification. Notice that one. It says, being the husband of one wife, managing their children and own households well. And so many people rightly say, if this is talking at all about female deacons, why would it then say being the husband of one wife? And friends, this argument does have merit. We've had to debate it as elders. But also realize that throughout history, while many pagan cultures have embraced polygamy uh, or polygyny or one husband with many wives, there are almost none that have attempted polyandry or one wife with many husbands. It's just not a thing that humanity has dealt with very often. And so remember that outside of our hypersexualized context in the 21st century, marriage had to do with procreation and inheritance. And so in the time of Paul and Timothy, while the pagan societies around them were okay with a man taking on multiple female sexual partners, Paul was calling Christian leaders to submit to God's good order of one man, one woman, in heterosexual monogamy and obedience to God's design. So there was a need to say this. There was no need to tell the women not to have many husbands. And this was to show the same characteristic of faithfulness spoken of in verse 11. And further, this male deacon would need to manage his own household well, <clears throat> similar to the elders. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, this looks to chapter 2 in God's good order of male headship in the home and church. If a man was operating outside of God's good order in the home and letting his wife bear the responsibility of spiritual headship that God had actually placed on him, he probably would not be a good leader in the church because he doesn't understand God's good order. Now, now that I've given you all that information to ponder about these two qualifications, let's get back to our main point, which is the qualifications of who these servants are to be. They give us an idea, not only of who they were to be, but also what the role was to accomplish. First, they, like overseers, were to be models in the church for others to emulate. And if you're a deacon, you're probably gulping right now, going, really? People are to look to me? Uh-oh. Well, it's the same for us as elders. Uh-oh. Right? It is a heavy weight to bear, but it is a beautiful and wonderful weight to bear. In doing so, deacons are to point the people in their body to Christ. Second, deacons were and are to be, as the name describes, practical servants within the church. An easy way to think about it is that they were to assist and are to assist in the pastoral work of the elders. They're supposed to be pastoral assistants, if you will. In Acts 6, we are given a description of the earlier church's appointment of people to the office of deacon. And 
there, they were men only. What we don't know is if they added women later or if this is a prescriptive idea that should only be men. We don't know for sure. But it is a compelling question that should make us operate humbly in our position as a church. Would you go ahead and turn there with me, and we'll take a look at what they did. Go to Acts in your Bible. Go to the left from 1 Timothy. And go to Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Acts 6, verse 1. Give me an amen if you're there. Awesome. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, okay, that's uh, the Greek Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So you have this huge church, thousands of people at this point, uh, and those who were uh, Jewish, but they were also Greek, they were Hellenists, uh, their group of older women who were widows were seeming to not get cared for in the daily distribution of food and benevolence. Verse 2. So the twelve, the apostles, the elders of the church at that point, summoned the full number of the disciples, okay, this is where they draw together what we would consider a member meeting almost, right? The members of the church, the people that have been baptized into that community. And they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, to do the practical care. Not that it's lesser than, but they had been appointed to something. So he says, verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So there you have the delineation between the work and role of the elder and the work and role of the deacon, okay? This is a very biblical view of church leadership. And what they said uh, pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So these were the priests of the Sanhedrin, the priests of the temple, and they actually stepped out of that priesthood, out of the Jewish faith, into this new messianic view of the the Jewish faith in following Christ. The overseers, the pastor's elders, they had a massive job in leading in doctrine and teaching and prayer and oversight as the fathers to the faith of this fledgling church. So they needed help. (laughs) Man, they, yeah, being a pastor, you need a lot of help, right? They needed assistance. They needed uh, people to step in and help out. Why? Well, to care for a flock requires many hands. And many eyes and many voices. In our culture, it's basically become this consumeristic thing where, well, there's a staff. That's why we give tithe because they're paid to be the servants. So I don't have to be. I can just go to church. I can take it all in. And then I can go about my business the rest of the week. It's a very consumeristic view that has no basis in Scripture. The reality is, is that the church has to have many hands, many heads, many eyes to do the work of caring for the body. And so these model servants were added, men of good repute and with obvious fruit of the Spirit and wisdom in their life to help practically care for the body. And here in the dispersing and dispensing of benevolence to those in need in the church. So they were to do the practical care. It's not that that wasn't spiritual in nature. It's that they had a very uh, tight focus while the elders were doing more of the oversight, the teaching, the preaching, uh, the prayer, and the pastoral care. They help the elders in the first line of assistance in pointing people to the solid word of God. They help in a first line of oversight, acting as shock absorbers for the body and for the elders, uh, taking in questions and dealing with conflict when it arises. Uh, They're the first line of care as benevolence and tangible needs arise. And when needed, they rightly seek out the elders to jump in and help provide oversight and pastoral counsel or in the ministry of the word and prayer. This is the job of the deacon. Now, brothers and sisters, i got to tell you, we are so blessed at this church to have the elders and deacons we do, people of good repute. They are not perfect. I've ministered with most of them long enough, but they are people whom I can attest lay down their lives so sacrificially in so many ways, and they do so for all of you and for my family and I. And they lovingly hold me accountable when I'm not being a man of good repute. I praise God daily friends, for the oversight and pastoring 
of Ryan and Tyler. I could not ask for two greater shepherds. I praise God for the addition of Nick, and hopefully it'll move into this next congregational meeting where we can uh, appoint him to the place of elder if you affirm him. I praise God for his work. And I praise God daily for Jeanette and for Brian and for Wendy, for Elisa, for Matt, for Rachel, for Dan and Maddie, for Michael and Sarah, for Colby and Laura, for Lorraine and Zane. Daily, I am thankful for the work you do in loving this church. For their voluntary and sacrificial care and service of the body, day in and day out. Friends, are you thankful for them? We are blessed. Are you thankful for these brothers and sisters who serve you out of a love for Christ? Please pray for them. Please thank God for the gift of these people in your life. Please honor them and respect them for the love they show out of a love for your servant Savior. God has been gracious to Mission Fellowship with these individuals. And I pray he will raise up more elders and deacons from among all of you. With with these complementary roles and the people of good repute in each, the local church will live out its gospel mandate in health. And this is such a good thing. Such a good thing that Paul next discusses the rewards that come from serving well within the local church. And this is verse 13, back in 1 Timothy, if you go back there with me. The rewards that come from serving well within the local church. Paul quickly, at the end of this text, notes two rewards that come from serving well within the local church as a model servant, as a deacon. First, good standing within the church. To be a servant and a model servant as that is to surrender your life to Jesus in selfless sacrifice to God's people. It is to put the people you are serving and caring for above yourself. And these leaders do that. Now, my first role in the local church was as a lay deacon uh, at the age, ripe old age of, I think, about 24 or 25. I was a volunteer, and the responsibilities I was given were far less than what we ask of our deacons in this church, and quite honestly, far less than what the Bible asks of deacons. It is a job that is not glorious. It's not upfront. It doesn't get a lot of the face time uh, that maybe the pastors do sometimes, but it is oh so worth it because few roles in God's kingdom carry with them such a level of honor. Why? Well, I think that is what's tied to the second great reward that Paul says. He says that it provides the one who is a deacon with, quote, great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You see, when you're in a leadership position and you get a lot of kudos and a lot of people saying, oh, you're so great, you get confused and you don't know if if you're doing it for those kudos or for the Lord anymore. But I'll tell you what, as a deacon, oh man, you know real quick if you're doing it for the Lord. Because there are very few kudos. Paul says that it provides them with this great confidence because of that reason. The word for confidence here means boldness and courage in Christ. The role of deacon will act as a test in the life of the person practicing it. It may take a couple of years. We've even seen that in this church. But one will quickly find out if their motivation as a deacon in serving is of the Lord or of the world. Is it truly out of the selflessness of Christ or is it out of the selfish reasons like a need to be needed or a need for recognition or a need for being in a role of leadership and so on? But the person who is the example of service in the church, they can know they are solidly in Christ. And this is for those of you who may not be deacons in the formal office, but just are servants in community groups and discipleship groups in the kids' wing, uh, in, in hospitality or or uh, any of the other volunteer opportunities we have. You can know you're solidly in Christ because of the love that is evidenced in your service day after day and year after year. You might say, Hans, how can we know that that shows that we have confidence of being in Christ? Well, if you're doing it purely out of a love for Christ and for his people, the word itself tells us we can be confident that we are in Christ because of that. Take a look at John's uh, comments here in 1 John 4, 19 through 5, 3. 1 John 4, 19 through 5, 3. John says this. He says, we love because he first loved us. That's speaking of the gospel, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, which we'll talk about in a second. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
You see the connection there to the spiritual? Your relationship with God is reflected in your relationship with his people? Folks, the Bible knows nothing of a lone wolf Christian that is not involved in a church. The love for God is reflected in love for his people. And he says, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's his people. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The commandments of God lead to love and truth, and to love rightly is to fulfill the commandments of God, to lay down our life for one another after his example. This is why being in the role of elder or deacon is such a blessing, even though at times, as I said a couple weeks ago, it can be incredibly diff- difficult, incredibly painful, and even horrible at times. But in these roles, they are a blessing because we get to serve and love you as you serve and love one another so that we all grow into the image of Christ together. I was with some pastors the other day, and uh, the theme as we went around the room and kind of encouraged one another was, well, I've got about 200 things I could talk about that discourage me right now, but let me tell you something that's encouraging me. And every single time it was watching the body over which they were elders love one another well and show and image Christ. It's so encouraging when we get to see that in you and you get to see that in us. It's such a blessing. We get to emulate Christ as we lead. And when we step away, you graciously come to us and love us enough to call us back into that place of loving well. You see, Jesus himself is the one that we are trying to emulate. And that's why these jobs, especially this role of the model servant, they're such blessings is because you are getting to emulate the ultimate shepherd and the ultimate model servant, Jesus Christ himself. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter? Go ahead and look at 1 Peter chapter 2 in your Bible. It's the last place I'll turn you. 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 20, it's also up on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Here, Peter describes Jesus, and he uses the imagery of the suffering servant of God that we talked about in Isaiah 53, our first reading. And he also calls him the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He uses those same words that Paul is using to call leaders to in the church in 1 Timothy 3. And so let's take a look at what he says. He says, For what credit. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." You see, this is Paul's entire point in outlining these two offices, is that we are to follow not people who are just charismatic or maybe successful or really good at writing books or really good at podcasts. We are to follow people who emulate Christ and not do it perfectly, but desire it so heavily that they constantly bring themselves into examinations from their peers to understand if they're walking in Christ, who repent when called out for things that are ungodly and who strive after godliness. In Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus showed us what servant leadership is. He is our king because he was first a servant of the Father. He was raised up because he was humbled on our behalf. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. As Christians who are saved by Christ, justified by his death in our place, and then sanctified by his Holy Spirit, friends, it is not a question of whether or not we get to take the time to be sacrificial servants of one another, or if we have something more important. To be a Christian is 
to take on the role of a servant made after the likeness of Christ. And what a blessing it is for those in the church who take on the special designation and are appointed by their peers as deacons, as the model servants to whom we should all look and whom we should emulate. Christ is our ultimate shepherd. He is our ultimate pastor, our ultimate elder, our ultimate overseer. Do you know that Jesus Christ is the pastor of this church? That's why years ago I stopped using the phrase lead pastor. I am one of the pastors and elders. I just have the biggest mouth, so I'm up here the most. That's it. Christ is our shepherd. He is our pastor. He is our ultimate model servant, our ultimate deacon whom we are to emulate. And in accepting his sacrificial death on our behalf, we not only have justification by grace through faith, but also a perfect model to strive after in our service of one another. Now, some religions have gone wrong and they've said, well, just look at Jesus. He's a great teacher, a great model. Friends, if you have that without the cross, you have nothing because you can't get there without the cross because you are dead in your sin. And so it first takes us laying down our lives, bowing our knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who died in our place, so that we might have his Holy Spirit overtake us so that we could be his people walking in emulation of him. And Christ has blessed his local church full of embodied individuals with a practical, material, and incarnate example to follow in our elders and deacons. And so friends, after looking at the elders and after looking at the deacons, if you take nothing else away, take this. It matters who you follow. It matters who you follow. So let's finish by considering some implications as we close up. First, I'm considering that the majority of you consider yourselves Christians. So Christian brother or sister, I want to just ask you simply this morning, are you a servant? Are you a servant? If you're taking notes, write that question down and ponder it. Are you a servant? Would those around you, especially those who know you the best, speak of you as selfless? What evidence is there of this in your life? When the Spirit of God takes over someone's life and you realize the majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ's selfless sacrifice, friends, you cannot help but desire death of self so that the image and glory of Christ might grow in your heart. If that is not the case for you, you have to ask some questions of yourself. And so do you serve in your home? Do you serve in your neighborhood, in your community? Do you serve in this church? Friends, we need lots of volunteers. There's constant turnover in the kids' wing because, man, it, it wears you out, right? Amen? And so if you're a visitor, we need your help. Don't wait to be here a year before you jump in. We need people to serve. Do you serve where you're needed, or do you often have limitations and expectations around when you will and won't serve? I'm so thankful for some brothers in this church and sisters in this church who they are way higher pay grade than cleaning up the bathrooms, but they come in and clean up the bathrooms just because they love Jesus. If you recognize that you do not have a heart of a servant today, I want to just implore you to look to the cross of Jesus. For at the cross of Christ, we see what we are called to emulate, the laying down of our very lives for those we love to draw them to the Father in reconciliation. What a wonderful calling we have to be servants and to be led by the model servant in our midst by way of the Holy Spirit. A different way to ask the same question is, who do you serve with your life, with your time, with your talents, with your treasure? Is it yourself or is it Father God? And if so, does that lead to serving his people in your life? Who do you serve? There's a trend in the world right now where people are becoming more self-focused and self-involved and overall selfish. The last year and a half has caused people to speak and act in ways that only benefit themselves and do not think of the greater good of God's glory and kingdom. I have heard it out of far too many Christians' mouths that I know of. This last year has showed me that I'm not going to do anything I don't want to do anymore. I'm going to do only what brings me joy and happiness because this last year has been so hard. Can you imagine, dear friends, if... Christ, before he was crucified on your behalf, said, you know what, Father, I'm going to only do 
what makes me happy. I'm going to only do what's good for me. YOLO. (laughs) Can you imagine if Jesus said that? Where would you be? You'd be stuck in your sin and dead. You would not be here, and you would not be looking to an eternity with Christ. Don't buy into that, dear friends. Don't buy into that trend. It is not a Christian trend. Let's be a people that show a stark contrast instead by stepping more into selfless sacrifice and love of others. As things get harder, what do Christians do? They don't draw away. They don't go and be by themselves. They dig more into their brothers and sisters and help more. And I think this last year and a half is like salt on a steak. It just brings out the flavor that's already there. It shows our true hearts. And so maybe you might need to repent today. But we need to be the image of Christ to a dying world. Secondly, looking back at your life experience, not only asking the questions, who do you serve and are you a servant? But especially as a Christian, I want to ask you, what are the criteria you have previously used to choose someone as a model to follow? Are they what the Holy Spirit has provided in these qualifications, or is it because they're a really good QB and they talk about Jesus every once in a while on Instagram? What are the qualifications you use to find spiritual leaders? We are, again, blessed with men and women to emulate in this church and who are willing to humbly apologize and repent when they falter in these qualifications. God, give us wisdom, please, to use these qualifications as filters of who we should follow. Third, are you desirous of and actively engaged in relationships where you can pursue examination against these qualities? Do you surround yourself with people and do you ask the questions and open yourself up to examination? And do you act on the feedback that you receive or are you a person who likes to look holy because you ask a lot of questions but then you don't ever actually act on anything anybody gives you? To grow into these leadership roles, as Ryan noted last week, is to invite examination into your life. So the question is not, as he said last week, do I want to be an elder or deacon? But it's, do I want to be examined? Do you do that now? And do you want to serve by giving your life as Christ did? Fourth, church, I want to ask, how are we doing in showing our love and respect for these leaders that lay down their lives for us? When was the last time you thanked one of your leaders, and not just elders and deacons, but home group leaders, community group leaders, discipleship group leaders, those that serve in kids' wing. When you go to pick up your kids, do you thank them profusely for the fact that they just had to deal with the kid you want to pull your hair out about, right? When was the last time you thanked one of these folks who are serving you? Please know, too, that the greatest thanks you can give is to unite with all of us in the mission of making disciples. And lastly, I want to ask you, will you please commit to prayer with me? Pray for the deacons and elders of this church as we serve, for joy and encouragement and endurance, but also prayer that God's Spirit would turn all of us into servants of one another, this entire church, into servants of one another in full emulation of Christ, so that those who visit us, those that maybe are even here amongst us this morning, might be blown away by the spirit of Christ that is in this church and the love we have for one another. Will you join me in prayer for that? Will you do that? May the church have ears to hear what the spirit of God is saying to it this morning about serving in the image of Christ. Amen.